You're listening to the Small Business Talk podcast with Kathy Smith. Small Business Talk is a podcast for business owners and entrepreneurs who want a better way to run their businesses without spending years doing it the hard way. Small Business Talk is hosted by Kathy Smith, who has run the same marketing agency for more than 17 years and helped hundreds of business owners achieve their marketing goals. Welcome to Small Business Talk, episode 172. Today, my special guest is Daisy McCarty from Marketing Blender. Welcome, Daisy. Thanks for having me on the show, Kathy. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. And our topic is marketing on a small budget, how to make the most of it. And I'm sure we all want to know the tips and tricks on that. Absolutely. I find that small businesses are the organizations that can least afford to make mistakes with their marketing budget. And it's very common for them to run out of runway in terms of what they can spend before they start seeing results. So it's definitely a topic that's near and dear to my heart in terms of helping small businesses make those decisions about their marketing that are sustainable, that are realistic, and that can actually have an impact on their revenue. Yes, it's definitely a topic close to my heart as well. It really annoys me when people are spending tens of thousands of dollars and getting no return on money they really can't be affording to spend anyway. And then they go, but that's what they told me to do. No, stop. Absolutely. It's really, it's a tragedy that the small business community doesn't always have access to good decision-making criteria for how to spend on marketing. And it really is easy to say, well, the social media agency that I hired or the digital marketing people said this, or, you know, I had somebody design my website and they gave me this advice. And it's usually general best practices that they're being told. They're not being deliberately led astray. It's just that no one's done the deep dive into what's appropriate for their specific business, because it really does look very different from one industry to the next and from one business model to the next. Yes, it certainly does. And generics don't work for everybody and not all platforms work for everybody. I once had a client who really wanted to do Instagram, absolutely loved it, spent all her time on it. And I said, okay, what kind of content have we got? What photos have you got? Oh, no, I don't want to do photos. Unfortunately, Instagram is all about photos. So you really do need to pick a platform that's going to work for your style and your business. That's a very good point. It really, it's A lot of it is about where your buyers are and making sure you're getting in front of them. But if you're the content creator, it also has to be something that you enjoy enough that you can keep doing it month after month after month, because otherwise you will definitely burn out. And then all the goodwill and all the branding that you've done up to that point kind of peters out and goes to waste. Yes, so true. And glad you mentioned branding because we see different things on different platforms. And sometimes you even wonder whether it's the same type of business or if it's actually the same business. And we know with big businesses, their branding is SMIC right across. So what do you have suggestions on what people should be doing about their branding? When I work with small businesses or mid-market businesses, we always start with building a brand message playbook. And it really is defining exactly what the brand is supposed to be, who they're talking to the market, how they talk to them, and the voice and style that they use. Our creative director will do brand identity work with them as well. So it's everything is documented and agreed upon. And it's not just we think this looks good or our competitors doing this, so we should imitate it. It really goes down to the core of the truth about the business 
and what matters to their customers. Because it's always at the intersection of those two things that you find what's going to resonate about a brand. And then it's really about making sure that when everything is put together in one place, it doesn't matter if you hire a social media specialist or you have an intern who's helping with your marketing or you have a digital agency that you're working with. Everybody has the same set of documentation to work with. And it's much easier to keep consistency across all platforms. Absolutely. And you find that a lot. Whoever set up the logo or the branding in the first place, if they haven't done that playbook or that style guide, years down the track, when you're trying to reproduce it, you're changing, you've got new staff on, you need new collateral, it's very difficult to keep that consistent if you can't go back to the original designer. But if you've got that playbook and that style guide, then like you say, it doesn't matter who you hire after that. They know what your brand is. They know what your fonts are, they your colors, everything, and it can be reproduced. Absolutely. We often work with organizations that have channel partners or you know, white label partners who are using pieces of collateral from our clients and having that guide to send to them to say, if you're going to use our assets, don't do weird stuff with our logo. This is stuff that you can change. This is stuff that you can't hear all the assets that make it really easy for you to keep everything consistent. So it even goes beyond just the organization itself, but how it's portrayed by third parties who may be presenting it in the market. Yes. And the other thing, of course, with branding is make sure that it is done properly, even if you're a small business, because what you find is you don't think necessarily you need signage at this stage. You're not thinking about a website, perhaps. But as time goes on, can that logo be made bigger? Can it be made smaller? Can it be put onto a darker background or a lighter background? These are all the things that proper branding agencies will think about. So when you're doing a logo yourself, you need to be putting on that branding hat as well. That's a very good point. And is it going to look good on promotional items? Is it going to be accessible in the era here of uh, accessible web design? Can people see it if they just see in black and white or they have low vision? I mean, there's so many different aspects to creating something that works across all platforms and for all people. Absolutely. So what do you think people should be doing in regards to their actual budgets when they're marketing? So when we're talking about budget, we always want to look at where the revenue opportunities actually are for an individual business. And we have a a marketing diagram that we use for this that has things like awareness at the very top and at the bottom, it has closing the deal. And obviously with your background in marketing, you you can fill in the blanks for what goes in between. You've got awareness, you've got traffic, you've got conversion, you've got nurture, you've got late stage deals, and you've got closing and you've got, you know, post-close nurture that can happen as well. So when we look at organizations that want to have that very near-term impact so that they can start generating revenue faster with marketing, and then they can reinvest some of that revenue in ongoing marketing, which is very important for small businesses that can't afford to do everything at once. We often look at allocating budget toward the later stages in the funnel. So for example, I have a client that brought a new solution into the market but they didn't tell their existing customers about it. So they were missing an opportunity to drive new revenue from an existing customer base that already really enjoyed them as a vendor and appreciated all they were bringing to the table. So it just took one email campaign to drive 10 new sales conversations with their existing customer base. And that's an extremely low lift for a very high reward with a warm market. So I always tell small businesses, look to where you can expand your existing revenue opportunities first, If you're looking to make the most of your small budget for some organizations, they have, you know, 30 or 40 late stage deals that just kind of petered out. 
and they think it's all a sales conversation to restart that. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's having marketing come in and build out scripts and nurture campaigns to just reactivate those late stage prospects so that they can be turned into closed deals. For organizations that have decent awareness but no web traffic, it's usually a matter of looking at organic SEO or sometimes digital ad spend to drive direct traffic to the website. If they've got plenty of traffic on the website, but it's not conversion, it's not optimized for conversion, it's time to look at optimizing that conversion rate and making sure that there is a journey on the website. So it looks like examining what is the user journey? What are you trying to get people to do? Do you just need to go into your existing website and add calls to action so people know what to do next? Because you may know in your mind, hey, they hit this page and the next logical thing would be for them to go look at this other page. But if you're not actually directing them on their next step, they may just bounce off. They may just leave and you're losing that opportunity to turn traffic into actual contacts in your database. Uh, for organizations that are really just starting out and they don't have enough brand awareness, it definitely makes sense to at least put some of that spend toward either social media or some other kind of awareness campaign. It doesn't mean everybody needs to know about the business. It means they need to go exactly where their prospective customers are and make an impact there. Yes, so there's quite a bit to unpack there. So starting off with that warm audience, they say that 68% more likely to buy from you if they already know. So I think that warm audience is definitely somewhere that people forget about and their existing clients. And they go, oh, well, they'll never buy XYZ or widget. And then suddenly you find out that they've actually bought it from somebody else because they just didn't realize that you sold it. You might have told them at the beginning of the conversation, which may be a couple of years ago, and you haven't reinforced that. So that's an easy win and often a very quick win for very little ad spend or even marketing budget quite often. Like you said, just a simple email campaign and wham, there you go. You've got those immediate sales generally. The other thing, of course, is that not everybody is ready to buy at the stage that you're putting something out into the market. They say only 2 to 3% is ready to buy your exact product right now. So you've mentioned nurture campaigns a couple of times. So for the audience that are not aware, that's something where you're showing them the product to begin with and then you're following up on them. So it might be a lead magnet. It might be something that they can click on and get some more information. We've got to remember that people have different buying styles and learning styles. Some people want something quick. Other people want to make a decision over a time. So depending on what your product is, that time might be a couple of days, a couple of weeks. It could even be a couple of years if it's a big thing. So if you're not top of mind, when they are ready to buy, are they going to remember you? And then, of course, there was the website. And yes, how often do we think that our websites are absolutely fantastic but we forget to look at it from the customer's point of view. Having the most fantastic website that Google can't find, nobody's going to find it unless you lead them there yourself. So I get really annoyed with people when they spend all this money on websites and then it ends up in a Google graveyard because they've forgotten that they need to tell people. They've forgotten that they need to send traffic. And unfortunately, with so many websites being built every day, I think it's something like 175 a minute, you need to let Google know, you need to let your prospects know, and you need to let your existing customers know that you have this website. Might be a new website, might be rebranded for that new product that you've just got. For sure. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on optimizing user experience on the website. So I totally agree. If, if no one can find your website, then they're not going to get anything out of it. But once they're on the website, what do you find are some of the best ways 
to turn traffic into contacts and then into leads. By having a phone number to start with, people are really scared to put their phone numbers front and centre. Yes, it sometimes does increase the bounce rate because they've just come for the phone number. So they've got the phone number and they bounce out. But Google's savvy enough now to know where you're looking. So they know if they're bouncing out because of the phone number and they will adjust the algorithms to that. So making it easy for people to find what they're looking for. So exactly what you said, Daisy, the next step is not often clear to our customers. We think it is because we know that once you do this, you do that. But do our customers know that? Do they know that there's more information on the second page? Because most people will come to the home page. So unless you're sending traffic to a lead page, which may not be the homepage and shouldn't be the homepage because there's generally too much information on the homepage if you want them to do one specific thing, you need to think about where you're sending them and what that page is designed to do. So if you want them just to download, say, a lead magnet, if you send them to the homepage and there's lots of flashing things, there's maybe a video, there's a call to action, there's a phone number, they've forgotten what they were there for in the first place. I love it. Bringing it back to to SEO for a moment, I would say one of the places that businesses should absolutely spend is if they're doing an organic SEO strategy, they need to invest in appropriate tools. I get asked all the time, how can I do free SEO research? (laughs) You can mess around in Google and try to guess what people are doing based on what comes up, but really using a professional tool like SEMrush is making a massive difference because organic SEO is not a short or an effortless process. It is months and months and months of work. So spending a hundred or two hundred dollars a month on a tool that makes sure that every piece of content you're creating serves a purpose in your larger SEO strategy is a smart budgeting decision. Yes, absolutely. And it's very easy to mess up your SEO when you go in and change things. If you're not aware of what your page is being optimized for, what keywords you're using, and why you want your customers there. So you need to remember when you're thinking of keywords, it's what they're searching for. So if you have a huge big jargon word that is common knowledge in your industry, but not common knowledge out of your industry, then Optimizing your page for that jargon work is only going to bring your competitors and nobody else. So you need to be thinking about what your customers are looking for. I had this conversation with a client literally today. He was reviewing a piece of SEO content that I created and everything that he wanted to remove or change was a keyword. His reasoning was, well, this is not the technically correct way to say this, or this is not how I've heard it said. And I had to tell him this is based on actually what I'm finding people are searching for. These are exactly the things that they're saying. This is exactly the question they want answered. And we have to answer the exact question that they're answering. If we want Google to pull featured snippets and things like that and and up our SEO game. And it is, especially for highly technical people and people who are experts at consulting, it can be hard to say, I need to meet people where they are and answer the questions that they think are important. And then I can educate them about you know, in terms of what I know to be true and what the things are that they don't know about. But you always have to serve customers what they're actually looking for first if you want to win the SEO game. Absolutely. And the words that they're using. And one of my favorite examples is children and kids. So you might decide that you don't want to use the word kids because your product is a a bit more upper class. It might be a bit more classy. But if people are searching for kids, not children, 
then you're never going to come up. So your fabulous product is not going to be able to be sold because nobody will find you. That's a really good example. (laughs) I'd like to touch a little bit about budgeting for paid ad spend, because this is an area that can be very, very risky because it's expensive to spend on things like Google ads and LinkedIn ads. One thing that I found for organizations that want to get the most out of their ad budget in terms, especially of Google ads, things that put your brand in front of people when they're doing the thing right before they need your service is what works best. And the more action oriented that thing they're trying to do is, the better. For example, we found that offering templates as lead magnets is incredibly powerful, much more than here's a white paper on this or goodness gracious, please don't gate your case studies and make people give you an email to read about how good your business is at serving customers. But things like templates and checklists and comparison matrices, these are all things that indicate somebody is right about to make a decision. And even if you're giving them a free resource so they can try to do something on their own that you could help them do better, if they would just engage with you, give them the free resource, give them the DIY tool that they're looking for, because that's going to put you directly in their decision path when they figure out this is a great tool that I've been given. And here's the video that they gave me with it. It's a great instructional video, but this is still too hard for me to do by myself. And then you're the expert that they're going to turn to and say, hey, I'm having some trouble with this template. Can you help me with it? And then you can bring in your paid service offering, whatever level is appropriate for that customer. But it's one of those things that not only helps you get better results, conversions tend to be very good on landing pages that do offer templates and tools to people, but it also is very close to the bottom of the funnel. So it doesn't end up necessarily having to be months and months and months of email nurture. Although the people that don't say yes right away, you definitely want to put them into your marketing funnel and continue to nurture and provide value with each email interaction that you have with them. Perfect. And it also disqualifies people as well. And that's one of my favorite things to talk about is people say, but if I give them too much and they can do it themselves, then they're not going to buy from me. Those people are never going to buy from you anyway. And if they were to buy from you, they're probably going to be really difficult because they can do most of it themselves anyway. So by giving them those tools and sending them on the right path, quite often will make them actually an advocate and they're more likely to recommend you to people, their friends and other colleagues that don't have their skills and aren't able to do what they can do. So actually disqualifying people is a good thing too because then you get more to your core customers who are going to be happy to pay you the money and love the service that you do. That's very true. I do a lot of workshops and events and not all of them are paid workshops and events, but even people who are not going to buy, they leave me fantastic Google reviews. So there's stuff that I get out of that. I get feedback. I get ideas for my next events. So there is always an appropriate time to ask for the sale. And If you're waiting too long for that, you can miss out. But I don't worry about over-delivering value, especially in the early stages, if it's as long as I'm not overwhelming people, because there can be a point where you've delivered so much value that you're drowning people and they can't make use of it all. So pacing it out so you're building that value over time and sometimes even making sure you have smaller priced options along the way just to train people to value what they're getting from you can also make sense. Yes, absolutely. And a confused mind will never buy. So that overwhelm is actually one of the worst things we can do. 
So we all know that when we've clicked on a pair of shoes or we're looking for that car and suddenly it's following us around everywhere and now we've got 15 different options, most of the time we won't actually buy because it's become too confusing. So that overwhelm is definitely a problem to marketing. So make sure that you are delivering the value. And I love the idea of the lower price point because sometimes people just have to try. They want to see what you're like and they want to know whether the information you're giving is actually going to work for their business. Absolutely. And to your point about overwhelm, there's an old saying, people love to make choices, they hate to make decisions. And that's true. You have to make it very simple. This or that, A or B. Like you go to the eye doctor, is it one or two? And you just have to make one decision at a time instead of being faced with here are 10 different things and have to evaluate all of them together and try to figure out how one thing is going to impact the other. It's just too much. And we live in an era of decision fatigue where people are just completely overwhelmed, especially in areas like marketing when there's so many different things that you could be doing. You just need help figuring out what you should be doing. Absolutely. There was a very famous study. I don't remember who did it, but it was jars of jam at a supermarket. And they had one table where they had three different choices and they ran that for a couple of days. And then after that, they had a table that had eight different choices. And the three different choices, most of them, one or two sold, great. The eight, very few sold because there was just too many options and people didn't even stop to try because, oh my God, I haven't got time to do eight different choices. The two or the three option is generally the best because that does give them the option to buy and they don't feel like they're being sold to. So what would you suggest that we should be doing in the way of planning out our marketing budget? So it's helpful to understand some of the benchmarks around marketing. And for small businesses, this can be very frightening because they can choke if they hear even something like seven or 8% of the revenue for their business should be directed toward marketing. For some organizations, for example, in SaaS sales, 13 to 14% is a more appropriate amount of revenue. Unfortunately for small businesses, the typical approach to budgeting for marketing is, I'm going to pick a tactic that I think I can afford on the money that I've taken away from other parts of my business. I'm gonna keep spending it on that tactic until I run out of money. Then I'm gonna say, well, marketing doesn't work. And unfortunately, that's the logical way to do things unless you know there are different ways to do things. So understanding how you're going to align your marketing budget with revenue impact and the actual outcomes that you're driving toward is the first thing in deciding how much do I budget? You know, what time frame do I need to budget for? It's usually a good idea to look at what you're going to budget for the next 12 months because almost all marketing activities show results over time rather than you know within the first 30 days. And you can reallocate your budget every quarter based on what's working and what's not working. And again, that goes back to, are you looking to target awareness, traffic, conversions, nurture, late stage deals? Where are your greatest opportunities and where are your greatest gaps? So it's about aligning with those things. So I recommend definitely understanding as you're budgeting for those different areas, What's the reasonable timeline to see results and what metrics should you be tracking? For example, if you're looking at social media, that is a long play. Building an audience takes time. The metrics that you're tracking are things like new followers, engagement, comments, likes. As you build out that ecosystem, you can actually turn that into a lead generation engine where you're looking at clicks and form fills and other kinds of lead generation. But that is something that takes place over quite a long time period. 
with something like organic SEO, you want to make sure your budget can cover six to 12 months. So you can actually see are the SEO decisions that we're making having an impact in terms of driving visibility on the web and driving traffic and making sure both our individual page rankings and our overall website domain is ranking higher. And when it comes to things like ad budgets, where you are going to know very, very quickly, you know, week to week, you need to be looking at that very closely to make sure you're optimizing it. You need to make sure you have enough runway to continue optimizing because that first month, very likely you're mostly just going to be testing to see what works, even if you've got it fairly well targeted to begin with. So it's not one, the same spend every single month necessarily. You need to have some flexibility in it. So as you test, you've got your roadmap ahead of you. These are the things we're trying. This is what we're going to track in terms of metrics to see what's working. And if we need to reallocate because something's working really well, and if we double down on it, we're going to get a ton of leads out of it. Or if we need to invest something in another area because it's being neglected. So we're not able to fill later stages in our funnel because we're not paying enough attention to the top. You need to have some flexibility to adjust for that. Yes. And I think there's some really great points there is making sure that you do have that runway. You do have that allocation for six to 12 months, but that you are checking it because the thing that no doubt you see as well as I do, Daisy, is that people put their faith in the experts. And in our industry, unfortunately, it is very unregulated. So experts can be anybody who's done it for granny down the road to somebody who's got years and years of experience. So you need to make sure that you're keeping people accountable. So whether you're doing it yourself or you're getting somebody to do it, make sure you are testing it, make sure you are tracking it and make sure that you do change things if they're not working. So if you've got a budget, don't put the whole budget into one thing and walk away. And then at the end of six months go, oh, well, that didn't work. It didn't work because you weren't watching it. And you need to be making sure that you're keeping your experts accountable. So if anything sounds a bit dodgy or sounds a bit sus, push them a bit more. And if they're not giving you the metrics, if you're not getting the tracking, if they're not telling you why things are working and why things aren't, then maybe that's the time that you need to be looking at whether that expert is the expert for you. That's very true. And I would say it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the relationship. Number one, small businesses need to have enough education under their belts that they can sniff things out earlier, that they know if they're telling their vendor this is who my audience is, this is what they care about, this is what they need, that they can articulate that clearly. Because no expert can give you results if you can't tell them what you're actually driving toward. And no one's going to know your buyer persona as well as you do. So making sure that you're communicating clearly up front what it is you're driving toward. And your vendor should also be asking the right questions so they can determine that they have enough information. And they should be able to explain why they're making every decision that they're making. And they should be happy to explain it to you and educate you on that. Because this is how they're making sure that they're getting results for you. And this ideally is what's going to make you stay their client month after month, year after year, because they're able to give you what you need and to help drive revenue impact. So that it really is a two-way communication street when it comes to working with people who are trying to help with marketing. They need to be educating you and you need to be educating them. And there needs to be a lot of transparency and a lot of ongoing communication. Absolutely. And they also need to be explaining themselves in language that you can understand, not in just jargon that's going over your head and you're going, oh, I've got no idea what you're talking about. So if you don't have any idea what they're talking about, you do need to stop them and ask them to explain it in a way that you can understand. And remember, your buying persona is so very important. You might call it a persona, you might call it an avatar. 
You can't sell to everybody. You don't want to sell to everybody. And if you're trying to put your ad spend in particular to everybody, it's going to be very expensive and you're not going to get returns that you're looking for. That's a good point. And it brings me back to the conversation about paid ad spend. For a lot of organizations, they think that Google is the only place that you can put ads. And it's not true. In the B2B space, we see a fairly even split between customers that should be advertising with Google and those that should be advertising on LinkedIn. And it has to do with whether or not there are keywords available that you can buy ad spend for on Google that put you in front of the right audience. So if someone's looking for a specific type of template and it's exactly the kind of thing that your company helps with, and you know that you know the majority of people looking for that resource are going to fit your target market, Google can be a great place. If it could be, for example, you sell specifically to a commercial construction audience, but 80% of the people who are looking for a specific thing are residential DIYers, Google Ads is not going to be a good place because it, you already guaranteed 80% of your leads at minimum is going to be the wrong target market. So if you can go on LinkedIn and find, you know, exactly the architects or the designers or the commercial construction business owners and just put your ads directly in front of that targeted audience, they may not have the same intent because they're not actively looking for you, but at least you know your message is going to be put in front of them. So there's always a trade-off. You know, there's intent on Google because you know exactly what people are looking for and why they're looking for it. Or there's targeting on LinkedIn where you can define the role, even what groups they're involved in, what their interests are, so that you know that you're talking to the right people. Even if it's not the right time for 97% of them to buy right now, they're seeing not only the current call to action, but they're reinforcing that brand identity over and over and making sure that you're top of mind when it is time for them to buy. Absolutely. And that is such a great tip because people think, oh, well, I've only got a small percentage on LinkedIn, for instance. But if that percentage is more likely to buy and more likely to be your ideal market, then in the end of that campaign, it's more likely to be successful. Otherwise, you're going to be spending a lot of money on people that are just not the people that you want to serve or can serve. So yes, you're getting leads, but they're not the right leads for you. And that can lead to a lot of frustration, especially if you have marketing and sales not in alignment, because sales is going to start saying, why are you sending me all these garbage leads? Can't do anything with these. And it really is. That's the other area of very common breakdowns between sales and marketing, when there's not agreement over who you're actually talking to and what action you want them to take. And there aren't realistic expectations or agreements about what are the outcomes? You know, not every marketing qualified lead is a sales qualified lead that's going to say yes right now. Some of them are just raising their hand and saying, we have an interest in what you're offering and they just need to be kept warm through a nurture campaign so that sales can activate them at the right time. Absolutely. And then it can also lead to problems with your vendors and your suppliers as well, because they're saying, well, we're bringing you leads. You said you wanted 100 leads this month. We've given you 120 leads this month. But how many of them were actually going to buy? How many of them are your customer? And how many of them are the people that you want to serve? So if you're not clear on what you want your marketing to do, you are going to be spending a lot of money getting leads that aren't going to happen. And then your vendor's done exactly what you've asked them to do. But in the end of the day, it's just going to cost you money because it's not where you need to be. Very true. That brings to mind another recent experience we had with a client where they engaged with us to bring them marketing qualified leads. And we set up their digital marketing 
And it was just gangbusters. So many leads coming in and they were actually the right target market and they were ready to buy. But when we tracked through marketing into sales, nothing was closing. And that highlighted the fact that they had an issue with their sales operations and their sales approach because these were piping hot leads and they just didn't know how to get them across the finish line. So we ended up having to switch off the marketing campaign because again, being smart with your budget means if you identify that the problem is not the marketing, it's the sales, you got to fix the sales. Otherwise, you're just turning on the spigot and spending the money. And not only that, alienating people who can't get what they actually need from your organization because they're not being led through that sales process in a way that leads to the outcome that they need. Yes, absolutely. And that's the other thing that you need to do. You might be getting the leads in, but you need to be tracking along that funnel to make sure that it's working. Recently, I heard a expert supposedly who was talking about Facebook ads and they said it was going great, did really well, but it wasn't converting. It turned out to be that the link that they were sending them to, the page was no longer there. So they'd spent all this money, they'd got their leads, they'd sent them somewhere that was an error. So of course, people bounce back. And then next time they see your ad, they're unlikely to click on it because they've had that bad experience and that bad experience just spreads. So you do need to make sure that you are following that customer journey and you're making sure that every step of the marketing funnel and then into sales is actually doing what you need it to do. So in your instance there, the sales wasn't working, but if you're not even getting it to sales, then that can be just as bad as well. For sure. Testing and visibility at every step of the way, it's so essential, especially if you have that smaller budget, you can't let leads go to waste. You can't burn your leads and you can't just let them fall through the cracks because something simple like testing, everything from the perspective of the customer hasn't been done. And this is one of the reasons I like to have people other than me and my team test things because they'll see things that we don't because we know what to expect. So everything makes sense to us. We know what to click next, you know, how to take whatever action is there. Somebody who hasn't seen that funnel, they don't know. And they'll let you know if they're confused along the way. Absolutely. And that goes back to what we were talking about before with the website is knowing or not knowing where to go next. And if your sales or marketing is confusing, then that'll be exactly the same thing. So getting outside testers and not people that have been within your company either, because they will know what to do generally. So if you can get teenagers, they're a great resource because they will tell you exactly there is no filters. And particularly if they're friends of friends, that sort of thing, they go through your system and pull it to pieces, which is really great. And that's another thing that you need to be thinking of. And we did touch on it briefly at the beginning of the conversation is about your audience. So if you've got a younger demographic, then they'll be looking for quick. If you've got an older demographic, they might maybe be looking for a little bit more information before they'll click. So you just need to have a think about who your customers are and what their buying preferences are. Do they need some more information? Do they need options or do they need just to happen right now? That's a good point. I love the idea of using younger folks to test things because I tell you what, they were raised with a much better user experience than those of us who were born before the internet. And they will not tolerate anything other than fast and easy at every level. At the same time, if you if you do have an older demographic that you're selling to, things that are obvious to younger folks are not obvious 
to people who didn't grow up with technology. So things sometimes just need to be more clear and slower. Yeah, absolutely. And pricing can be one of those huge things. When I started building websites way back in the day, nobody put their prices on. Now, if you don't put your prices on, we just don't know whether we can buy it or not, whether we can afford it, whether it's the product for us. So if you haven't got your prices clear and front, then people will just won't even consider it and go forward. And people say, well, pricing is such an individual thing. Yes, it is. But if you don't give them some idea of your ballpark, you don't know whether you're looking for a Mini or a Mercedes. And it's pretty embarrassing to turn up at the Mercedes dealer and find out you've only got a Mini budget. It is. And we're actually rebuilding our website over at Blender right now. And that was one of the things that we're making sure is extremely easy to find. Because marketing is an area where things can cost 10x from one vendor or agency to another. And people do have the right to know how to make decisions faster by saying, okay, is this even something that's reasonable or feasible? Transparency is good. Again, making sure that you're not overwhelming with information, but understanding what they're there to figure out. What's the job to be done? What do they need to know on your website so that they can take a next step? And that's the next step that they define. And hopefully... If you help them take enough of their next steps, then they're going to start trusting you to guide them on what their next step should be. Absolutely. And giving them enough information so they know whether they're getting an apple, an orange or a pear, because just saying that you want marketing could be anything from $0 to multi-million dollars. So it really does depend on what you're getting for your money and what the perceived value of that is. For sure. Well, this is fabulous. And as you can see, we're marketing geeks, so we could geek out on this all day. So Daisy, is there anything else that you think our audience should know that we haven't already covered? I think as far as marketing budgeting, we've done a pretty good job at covering that. So I appreciate that. I would just say one takeaway is if you're looking to learn about how to make marketing decisions, it's never about finding a tutorial to tell you how to do a thing. It's about understanding the decision-making criteria behind it. So that it starts with your buyer personas, understanding who they are, where they go, what they want, who's influencing them, and how you can get in front of them. Fabulous. And on that note, it's time to ask you five questions. Are you game? All right, let's do it. What is the best advice given to you by a mentor? Accept graciously. Very nice. What is the biggest help you've received since starting your business? I would say definitely surrounding myself with people who are all excellent at what they do and who care about getting better at it. It's the exactly the type of professionalism that helps elevate everyone across the marketing industry. And I've been very fortunate to be surrounded by teammates and collaborators that are like that. Fantastic. What is the one thing that you have to do every day? You're non-negotiable. My one thing to do every day, I need to make somebody's life better. Wow, that's a great one. What is your favorite business book and why? I think my favorite business book is one called Get in the Boat by Pat Bodine. And it's kind of a very specific business book, but I found it's applicable to a lot of different organizations because it helps you understand what matters to different people at different levels within an organization. You've got people who care about efficiency, people who care about effectiveness, and people who care about the overall vision. So if you're selling B2B especially, understanding what matters to each of those stakeholders within a larger organization is going to make you dramatically more effective. Excellent. What do you wish that you had known when you started out? That there's help available and I didn't have to do so much of it by myself. 
And I think that's a really good thing, isn't it? We get so caught up in having to do things and we can only do it our way and it's got to be done right. Whereas we don't often realize that there's three or four or five different ways it could be done. And quite often there might be a better way that somebody else can do for you. Very true. Good questions. Thank you. Fabulous. I've enjoyed our chat immensely, Daisy. And if our audience has enjoyed it too, where can they find you? The easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn. So I think I'm the only Daisy McCarty that has a, a fully filled in LinkedIn profile. That last name is M-C-C-A-R-T-Y. There's no H in it. But just look me up on LinkedIn. You'll find ways to book me on my calendar, get in touch with me, access free resources, and just make sure you hit up some live events because we love doing real-time marketing research and helping people figure out how to move forward. Fantastic. And we'll drop that and all your other links in the show notes. So I appreciate your time and your wisdom, Daisy. Thank you very much for being on Small Business Talk. Thank you, Kathy. SBT audience, remember to enjoy your journey. Don't forget to subscribe to Small Business Talk podcast and head on over to smallbusinesstalk.com.au forward slash downloads for all the show notes and links to this episode. Remember, to be great, you must start. Pick one tip from today's episode, take action and implement it. Let's meet again next week at the same time and place. Until then, take action. And SBT community, enjoy your journey.